right, so we are back in Acts, and we are in chapter 19, and this is going to be your first blank. We haven't even done anything yet, but I'm going to give you a blank already. If you don't have a handout, raise your hand. How does ever go? All right. Who else doesn't have one? Mom, you don't have one? Oh, you have one. Okay. Anybody else need one? All right. So I'm going to start off by giving you a blank because I love you guys. Okay. Uh, Acts chapter 19. The title of this is God's Extraordinary Miracles in Ephesus. Interesting. God's extra ordinary miracles in Ephesus. Now, we're going to spend some more time on that as we keep going, but the Bible makes it very clear that these miracles are indeed extraordinary. They're not ordinary, they're extraordinary. And sometimes people can read Acts chapter 19 and be like, you see, we should be handing out handkerchiefs and blessing things and selling them on TV and on the internet. No. That's not true. That's extraordinary. Okay, so let's do this. Uh, let's have someone read for us Acts chapter 19, uh, verses 1 through 7. That's going to be our first kind of thing that we tackle this morning. Acts 19, 1 through 7. Michael, you're pointing at yourself? Please, sir, go for it. Right, so we have uh, Acts chapter 19 is uh, full of action. This will be a fun chapter because we just see cool things happening all over the place. Um, and one thing to note, uh, Aquila and Priscilla uh, are a married couple. Last week I may have sown confusion because my California came out in me and I was saying my dudes, Aquila and Priscilla. Uh, anyways, you can go back and listen to the recording, but I got really excited, and I've been called out by at least two people saying, I didn't know that they were two guys. I'm like, no, they're not two guys. It was, it was a married couple. And they were like, no, but you said my dudes. I'm like, oh. So I'm sorry that I can't control my California sometimes, but dude is appropriate for both female and male in California. Okay, you can say dude, and it, it's, anyways. So uh, I apologize for that. Let me just clear it up. Okay, so we get back to Acts chapter 19, and we see that Paul, who has now come to Ephesus, he finds some disciples. And now the question that we have to ask is what is this difference between John's baptism and Jesus's baptism? Now, a lot of people would put, maybe overemphasize too much weight on the difference of these two things. So I want to just explain a little bit about both of these baptisms that we see in Acts chapter 19. Because when Paul comes to these disciples, what does disciple mean? Anybody? 
I saw mouthing, but I just didn't hear any words come out of it. Follower, okay, follower of Christ. Now you put that on there, the of Christ, and I think that's true for the most part for what we would call, you know, each other disciples, right? But when we talk about being a disciple, we are a follower. We're going to be following somebody. What else describes what a disciple is? Followers, one. Student, very good. Yeah, it's a student. You're a learner. You're trying to learn, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're a convert. It just means that you're starting to learn about someone or something when you're a disciple. doesn't mean that you're technically a convert yet. So when Paul comes upon these disciples, sometimes we might read into that, oh, they're disciples, oh, they must be Christians. And so I just want to pump the brakes there and say, I don't think we actually have that here. I think we have learners, and there's, there's lots of disciples of lots of different people, of John, of Jesus, of uh, different rabbis. There could have been multitude of different types of disciples. And I think the context here helps us understand that these people, these disciples, are not necessarily converts yet, okay? So we're going to have this difference then when Paul says, um, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they're like, who's the Holy Spirit? What are you talking about? Who is this Holy Spirit that we're going to receive? Now, if you were a detective at this point, you would be going, hmm, they don't have the Holy Spirit yet. That's interesting. Uh, Pentecost has already happened, and, and when people are believing, they're receiving the Holy Spirit. This is kind of a, a one-two punch, um, or, or the Holy Spirit is regenerating them, helping them to believe. So Paul is now going, okay, you guys haven't received the Holy Spirit. So his next kind of diagnostic question is, well, uh, no, we have not received the Holy Spirit. And then he says, well, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So Apollos was teaching this in chapter 18, right? He was teaching this type of baptism, and the married couple, Aquila and Priscilla, brought him aside and explained to him more helpfully what he was actually teaching. But when we read in here John's baptism, Paul's going to describe what John's baptism was about, what the difference was. And so under your notes, John's baptism is the one for repentance and pointing to Christ. So this baptism was a, was a baptism of repentance, getting ready for the kingdom of God, getting ready for the king to come, right? But it was still pointing to Christ. And so as Paul is describing it to these guys, they're saying the baptism of repentance, telling them to believe in the one who was to come, that is Jesus. Now on hearing this, then, this group of disciples decided that's that's not what we've been believing, or that's not what we've understood. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Okay, So Christ's baptism, then, is the baptism that's done into the triune name of God with the promise of receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not going to get into that kind of debate of uh, what happens first. Actually, I will get into it. We know that the Holy Spirit regenerates our heart. So that we can believe. Um, but this, uh, this description is, is kind of seeing the fruits of the Holy Spirit coming on to the people. Now, if we are going to make an argument here that you must be baptized into Jesus' baptism and not into John's baptism, I think we can actually get into a little bit of theological trouble. 
And the reason being is last week we were super pumped about Apollos, right? He's kind of like this uh, guy who is, has all of uh, the credentials. He's been trained in everything. He's kind of uh, this awesome order. Um, but we never hear that Apollos is baptized into Jesus' baptism. In fact, he is preaching John's baptism, and Aquila and Priscilla didn't bring him over and say, hey, now you need to go get baptized by Paul uh, into Jesus' baptism. No, but what Apollos did is that he understood what he was teaching. He was understanding that there was this man named Jesus and that you do need to put your faith in him and that you do need to be baptized. But these guys then, these disciples... They are baptized, and we actually see this in the Bible the only time in the entire Bible that someone is baptized twice. And why that's interesting is because we see then that these guys actually didn't have faith in Jesus. They were just being baptized into John's baptism as something that a lot of Jews were doing. Oh, yeah, John's telling us to, to repent. We need to repent. We need to be clean. Sure. Baptism's cool. We can go ahead and do that. But they actually didn't believe in the one who was to come. Now, we see this um, kind of authoritative blessing upon them actually believing for the first time because what happens? What happens to these guys when they get baptized again? Thank you, Michael. I appreciate you for stepping up. Christy, I saw you mouthing it over there. You were, you were, you were saying it, but you just didn't. Anyways, um, I'm watching you guys. That's what I'm trying to tell you. I'm watching you as I'm teaching, okay? Um, so, yeah, so we see this being kind of blessed that these guys were, um, were now have received the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I like this quote. Um, let me see who this is from. This is from that Ecknerd uh, Schnabel. Uh, just love that German name there. Um, and this is what he says about Paul, his kind of inquisition here. He says, Paul's question goes straight to the point of what it means to be a Christian. The characteristic of a genuine believer in Jesus is not someone who is immersed with the correct formula, but who has faith combined with the Holy Spirit, whose, present, whose presence is evident in the lives of Christians whether through prophetic manifestations or through transformed behavior. So we see someone's a Christian because they are different. There are fruits of the Spirit that are in them. They, they actually have the Holy Spirit. And these people are saying, I don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. So I think it's a good argument here to say that these guys weren't actually believers yet. Okay? And I would also say it's not typical uh, what we see of the Holy Spirit, um, as soon as you're baptized, people speaking in tongues and, and all of those things, because this chapter is all about the extraordinary miracles of God. Okay, cool. Uh, so that was fun. Now, let me get somebody, uh, verses 8 through 10. Chapter 19, verses 8 through 10. Phil, okay, Larry, we'll, we'll do this. Phil, you go first. Larry, you'll get our next chunk, okay? Go ahead, Phil. Can you read that last part again? Uh, right after the comma, 
uh, in the last verse. Is your mouth not opening to this? I mean, all the residents of Asia? That's crazy. That's so awesome that, that Paul was able to have this extraordinary ministry here in Ephesus. Okay? So let's, let's answer a couple of things that are going on here. Uh, we see Paul doing his ordinary thing, right? And I've, I've taught this the last three weeks. So what does Paul do when he goes to a new city? You guys should know this by heart. It should just be oozing out of you. Goes to the synagogue. Great, great job. You guys have been listening to me. I'm affirmed. So when um, he goes into the synagogue, what is the things that he's doing? He's reasoning really good, right? And persuading, right? And what is he doing that through? Just really smart arguments? No? Through the scriptures, right? Yeah, the Old Testament. He's going to them and he's persuading them from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Christ, that this is the one that they need to be believing in. But now what's really interesting in this one, uh, kind of the caveat here is that he is um, persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now this is a big theme in the book of Luke and Acts. It's mentioned 37 times, this idea of kingdom of God. Now if Paul is going to be reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God, it's because the Jews would understand what's happening. Oh yeah, the kingdom. Let's go. Our Messiah is going to come. He's going to take up the throne. He's going to rule. It's going to be awesome. We're going to be in power again. But no, he's reasoning and persuading probably through uh, different books of the Bible like Isaiah in the suffering servant and saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. The king is here and he died on the cross for you. Right? And so this would be hard for them to, to understand, but he's trying to explain the king has come, the kingdom is here. Right? You guys need to believe in the kingdom. So Paul is reasoning to them about the kingdom. But as we talked about a few weeks ago, there are two things that happen when somebody hears the gospel. They're either going to believe or they're going to get stubborn and push away from what the gospel is. And as has happened for for um, Paul here is that this this typically happens everywhere he goes. They get mad. They boot him out of the synagogue. You know, this week he doesn't dust off his robes, but this week he does leave and he takes his disciples with him. And then they go to the hall of Tyrannus. Now, interesting here, the Greek word Tyrannus is exactly what you think it is. It's tyrannical, right? So poor guy, his parents must have really loved him. Your name is Tyrannus. Because you were tyrannical uh, during your labor. I don't know why, right? But that's, that's this guy's name. And so they're going to go to the hall of Tyrannus. Now, what is Paul doing? He's literally renting out a lecture hall. That's what this is. When they go to this hall, it is, that's a, that's a blank for you, uh, just to make sure you're awake, uh, under reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. What is a hall? It's, it's literally a lecture hall in which Tyrannus, who I don't know who wants to be, his student uh, with a name like that, the tyrannical Tyrannus, uh, but he would have been a philosophy instructor. He would have been teaching uh, in this hall uh, during the day um, and, and, and you know, discipling his converts into his way of philosophy. But they were able to rent out this hall. Now, some manuscripts will literally say that he taught from the fifth hour to the 10th hour. And during those times, that meant 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. This is when Paul would have been teaching. But that's a weird time of the day 
for us, that's kind of you know midday all the way to maybe your end of um, end of your workday at 4 p.m., maybe 5 p.m. Why would they be doing this? So here's a little background information for you. Uh, at that time in Ephesus and a lot of places uh, in, in Greek, uh, in the Greek world, they would literally take 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. off. This was their siesta time. I'm all about that. I want that nap from 11 to 4. That sounds great. Um, so for the most part, they were like, hey, man, you can rent out this hall because I'm going to be going to take a nap. Uh, or having a nice long lunch with my family, or whatever, uh, or probably not that. It was probably debauchery, because all those places are known for all of that. But this meant there was an opening for Paul to rent this hall and to teach. And so every day, this continued for two years that Paul was there, right? He was there teaching during this time. Now, again, a little information about this. The reason why they would take that time off it's because it was more normal for somebody to be awake at 1 a.m., kind of partying all through the night, than at 1 p.m. Everyone was so ready to take their nap at 1 p.m. Uh, that 11 to 4 was that kind of nap time, uh, get some rest, because everyone's out all night. And then they start teaching early because 11 to 4 is the heat of the day. And so they don't want to be in there without air conditioning. When it's hot like that, get out of here. Uh, you guys wouldn't want that either. I'd be sweaty. It'd be gross. And, and, you know, you're just hot. There's no air conditioning. So 11 to 4, he's in there teaching every day for two years. Now, all of Asia heard the word of the Lord because people would be coming into town. They'd hear Paul teaching out there, kind of an open air um, lecturing. So I think this is really interesting because this is a type of evangelism that maybe we're not participating in. We're not thinking about, okay? I think evangelism, when I think of evangelism, a lot of us will probably think of uh, maybe the way of the master. We're going to go and do, which is great, and I like that, and that's what I use in my personal evangelism, right? Um, that you're going to show them the law, you're going to show them their need for the law, then you're going to present the gospel, maybe two ways to live. We've got tracks here uh, for two ways to live, a great track, gospel track. Um, but a lot of that is kind of a, a street evangelism. You're just going to go out and you're going to find somebody. But this was more of an intellectual lecture. This was him going um, and teaching in a lecture hall. So it wasn't street evangelism. It wasn't even street preaching. He was teaching uh, people that would come and that would listen to him. And so it just kind of encouraged me, and I hope you're being encouraged by Acts, that all evangelism does not look the same. If you're not a street preacher, if you're not a, a track hander outer, if you're not a personal evangelism type of person, that one you can't really get away from, but um, if, if those aren't your strong suits, there are many ways to do this. So I'm going to take a second, and I want to hear from you right now some ideas that you have about evangelism here in our cultural context in Weatherford. Just blurt it out. I want to hear some different types of evangelism that maybe you've been thinking about, or, or maybe you've done, or maybe you're really excited and actually haven't pulled the trigger on it. This is the time when we participate. Benevolence, okay, so maybe helping those in the community that, that need help, and that gives you an opportunity to share the gospel, okay? What else in our community? What are ways in which we can do evangelism? Maybe doing trade days. Trade days? What would we do during the trade days? Either like publicly preach the gospel or 
very cool. Okay, it's a great idea. I know we've been noodling on that one for a while. All right, what else? Like when we do small groups at each other's houses, like from Acts 2, 46, um, or gathering together and breaking bread in their homes and receiving the food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all people, and the Lord adds to their number day by day those who are being saved. Mm -hmm. so we live favorably among each other and get together in our homes and eat with each other and study the scriptures and study the gospel with the disciples and Jesus. We, we, uh, the Lord blesses that. Uh, we just live reasonably among each other and uh, the neighbors see that there's people gathering you know, on Wednesday night or Thursday or Wednesday night and uh, they see that and they're drawn to that by the Spirit of God. And it adds to our number of those who are being saved. Wonderful idea, right? I love that too. And, and even taking that, and I think you were saying this, um, just taking that to you going to your neighbor. I think Dennis did this uh, as some of his application for one of his sermons that he had done previously, but literally going to your neighbor and inviting them over for dinner and then showing them how it is that you follow Christ yeah. even at dinner time, right? So if, you've, um, if you are into reading your Bible at the dinner table after you eat, you know, you could read with them out loud and that surely would weird them out, but that would be cool. Uh, to let them see that, right? Or if you do family devotions, you can invite them into a family devotion and let them experience that. Um, that's a great way to, to show people. All right, one more. Anybody have anything else that they would think about, about evangelism? to where there would be a um, kind of cultural celebration of something and being able to present the gospel there. Um, food usually usually brings people in. Yeah, good idea. Good idea. Uh, Father Son Bowl. Yeah, that was pretty good. That was really sweet. Good, good call. All right. We're going to move on now to extraordinary miracles. So somebody read for us. Verse 11 through 20. Oh, Larry. Larry, would you read for us chapter 19, verses 11 through 20? And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul. So a deep handkerchief or apron that touched his skin or carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirit came out of them. Then some of them, in the Jews, Jewish Thank you. 
Thank you, Larry. This is like the juiciest chapter of 19. I am really excited to dive into this because this is, this is just chock full of really interesting things for us to think about. So first off, I just want to give credit where credit's due, right? This starts off by saying, and God was doing extraordinary miracles, right? That's the thing for us to focus on. This was not the works of Paul doing extraordinary miracles, but it was on the extraordinary works of God through Paul. And boy, do we get confused about that really quickly. And, and there are TV channels dedicated to this, um, which, you know, it's, I, I feel like it's easy to pick on those guys uh, in our position because of what we believe and how we disciple and what we think. And sometimes I can kind of uh, maybe get tired of just pointing to these guys, but the reality is there is a TV station where people like this are proclaiming this type of theology to thousands of people. So it's a big deal, and you're probably going to come into contact with it, family, friends, people you meet, whatever the case may be. So it is good for us to understand that that was an extraordinary thing that God was doing, not Paul. So when the guy gets up there and starts waving his jacket around, or when he blesses handkerchiefs and tries to sell them, or donate to get one, um, that's just vile. It's just so wrong, and it just kills me. So, so let's look at this idea of extraordinary. So the Greek rendering of the word extraordinary. So when we read miracles, right, that's dunamis. It means power or miracle. But this is the only time that dunamis is qualified by this other Greek word, right? It's actually two Greek words saying not and ordinary. So we see that this is out of all of the Bible. Uh, this is the one time and in the book of Acts that miracle or power is qualified in this way when it says extraordinary, so not ordinary. So first, here's a quote. Um, I think this is from, uh, yes, John Stott. Uh, he, he says this about this, this idea. He says, first, Luke himself is not content to describe these events as mere miracles, uh, demonstrations of divine power. He adds this adjective, which is variously translated special, singular, remarkable, extraordinary. He does not regard them as typical, even for miracles. Secondly, he does not regard them as magic either. Now that's important for us to hold on to for a minute. For he sets them, or in a couple of minutes, uh, he sets them apart from the magical practices which Ephesian believers were soon to confess and renounce as evil. And then thirdly, the wisest attitude to the sweat rag miracles is neither that uh, of the skeptics who declare them spurious, nor that of the mimics who try to copy them. Now, John Stott is an Englishman, right? And this is what he says, like those American tele-evangelists who offer to send to the sick handkerchiefs which they have blessed, but rather that of the Bible students who remember both that Paul regarded his miracles as his apostolic credentials, okay? So that is the reason for these extraordinary miracles. It was uh, the credentialing of Paul showing uh, that this was the work of God. This gospel that I'm going to present to you is real. You see it by the miracles that are happening because they didn't have a full canon of scripture like you and I have of the Old and New Testament. It was being written. 
So, God was using Paul as an instrument in his hands. Paul's apostleship was established. Go to Romans 15, 18, not right now, but later on this afternoon, and 2 Corinthians to see that this is how Paul himself explained why they should look at him as an apostle. Okay? So Paul is not trying to make much of himself. These miracles were just happening. He wasn't like, all right, here we go. Sweat on my handkerchiefs. Go, be healed, right? Take all my handkerchiefs away. Like he was, he was teaching, he was preaching, and this was just happening. And then we get the Jewish exorcists. Oh, this is so interesting and cool, okay? And really, it, it should poke a finger into our ribcage when we read about this Jewish, these Jewish exorcists. So they were trying to follow what Paul was doing. Oh, look, this is successful ministry. We can do this too. Just follow exactly the incantation that Paul's doing, and then it will have fruit in my own life, right? So we're going to go exercise these demons like Paul is, and we're going to say it the way he does. So a group of them were children of the high priest Sceva, or however you pronounce it, which is actually not Hebrew, and it's not Greek. It actually comes from the Latin word meaning left-handed. So there's just a random fact for you to chew on uh, for the rest of the day, uh, being left-handed. Um, so anyways, they were a group of the left-handed high priest. Uh, so they were obviously well-educated in Jewish religion. But they were still attempting to use pragmatic practices in order to exercise demons from the people. So they were trying to use some sort of pragmatic practice in order to exercise demons from people. Now... How often do you and I get enamored with something pragmatic instead of what God is calling us to do? Let me poke you in the ribcage for a second, okay? Recite this form of evangelism and people will come to Christ, poke, right? Just do it like this, and if you're not, uh, that means you're not a faithful Christian or that means you're not doing evangelism right instead of the reality that the person might not be called to, to come to Christ or you're just called to be... Uh, a herald and go out and, and preach the good news or teach the good news or tell the good news whether people come to faith or not. Or make your service look this way and more people will come to church. Right? Make sure it's very comforting and play the right music and teach the right things and this will tickle people's ears and you'll get more people into the church. Okay? Here's one. Here's one that I have to put myself with. Teach your kids in this exact way and they'll become believers. This is a little quieter, right? Earlier, I was like, yeah, that's right, amen, amen. It's like, oh, don't, don't talk to me about that, right? No, but that's, that's a reality, right? We just do this thing, we will get this result. No. God does the work, and he calls us to be obedient, okay? So, don't get enamored in the pragmatic instead of what God is calling us to do. Now, this is also showing us the impact of the practice of magic in Ephesus. This is where I think the gold is uh, as, we're, as we're looking at this. They were practicing the occult in Ephesus. They had incantations. They had uh, charms. They had things that there, there were stories told uh, in their uh, games, their type of Olympic games. They would literally tie bags around their ankles with specific words from Artemis that would give them power to fight in these games. Um, so the Ephesians are just steeped in it. But they're so steeped in it 
that even well-educated Jewish elite were open to what they thought might be a special phrase that could somehow heal somebody. And they were subsequently beat up for trying to do that, right? They said, hey, and they tried it, and then the evil spirit said, I know Jesus, and I've heard of this Paul, but who are you? And I mean, they literally ran out of the house naked and wounded and afraid. So you could know that that was a total beatdown uh, by these evil spirits. But this helps us see how Ephesus was so used to magic. In fact, Ephesus was a place that was famous for their use of magic. Now, if money is no option, and you like to buy weird books on Amazon. Uh, Clint Arnold, who happens to be one of my theological man crushes, yes, I can say that. He was my professor at Talbot, uh, taught me Greek, wonderful scholar. He has done so much work on uh, Ephesus and their use of magic in the occult. Uh, that if money is no option, go Google him. Uh, I think it's Ephesians, Magic and Power. Really interesting stuff. Um, to just see how enamored Ephesus was, or you can buy his commentary on Ephesians, and he talks about it too. Um, but this incident, and we're going to go more deep into that here in a second, but this incident became known throughout all of Ephesus for both Jews and Greeks, and the name of Jesus through this incident was extolled, exalted, magnified, glorified. The name of Christ throughout all Asia in those two years were known because of things like this, extraordinary miracles that God was doing. So this literally led to a mass repentance or revival where Christians confessed their use of magic. That's what's wild to me, is we're seeing the syncretism. We're seeing Ephesians saying, okay, Jesus is cool, but so is magic, duh. Like, I'm going to say this thing, and then I'm going to get this power, or I'm going to get this special thing that's going to come back to me. But this incident led them to confess their sin, and it was like this massive revival that happens. In fact, they come and they burn all of their books, right? So our translation says about 50,000 pieces of silver or drachmas, um, and this was considered a day's wage for somebody, one drachma, right? So that's 50,000 days of wages. Um, a commentator has said that this equaled up to a year's wage for 137 different people. That was a lot of money that was getting burned up right in the middle of this place. And that's because they were convicted of their use of not just pragmatism, but of evil spirits of, of dabbling uh, in, in this demonology uh, as they were trying to practice magic. So let me just give a quote here about Ephesus. Um, Ephesus had a reputation in antiquity as a place where magical practices flourished. The practice of magic was predicated on a worldview that recognized the widespread presence and influence of good and evil spirit powers on every area of life. Magic represented a means of harnessing spiritual power and managing life's issues through rituals, incantations, and invocations. Now, this uh, is from Dr. Clint Arnold uh, on his work uh, in, in his commentary on Ephesians put out by Zondervan. Uh, really interesting stuff. But again, he shows us that Ephesus 
um, was so enamored in this. Artemis uh, is what's being worshipped here um, in Ephesus, um, the, the god Artemis. Um, we can get into where Nike uh, comes from uh, maybe another time, but your Nike swooshes on your clothing, you'll actually see that all over Ephesus if you ever go. Uh, I had the chance to go to Ephesus and see uh, the Nike swooshes on different buildings and things like that. Uh, it's really interesting stuff. But they worship Artemis, and Artemis's temple was actually bigger than the Greek Parthenon, which is huge. Uh, if you've ever seen it, if you Google it this afternoon, um, in fact, the temple of Artemis uh, was known as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world because it was so massive. Um, so anyways... Uh, just, just a little background information for you, um, if you are familiar uh, with kind of ancient history. This was a big deal, and part of the way they worshipped Artemis was through magic. So, there you have it. So, what then happens after this in three minutes? Uh, this is what happens. We have a riot at Ephesus, okay? Um, that is a lot of scripture that you're going to go back and read through this afternoon. Um, but I'm going to highlight kind of the important aspects here as we work through it. So Paul, before this riot happens, has these huge dreams for ministry, for God's ministry all throughout the world, right? Paul, his hunger to make God's name great doesn't end after, um, you know, he has this huge ministry where all these people are coming to Christ uh, that he's a part of. No, he wants to continue going. He wants to continue proclaiming. He wants to continue making God's name great. So he wants to go back through Macedonia, back through Achaia, and he wants to get to Rome. And we know that uh, he, he does get to Rome, um, and uh, that is where we think he meets his, his end. At least that's where we get uh, kind of extra biblical history tells us as that's where he dies. So... We have uh, Paul finally getting to Rome, but this, this hunger of Paul, I hope, is rubbing off on us. And then we see this other word that's been mentioned a couple of times in our, um, in our chapter this morning is the way. Okay, Who's familiar with the, uh, the term the way? Anybody heard it before? Yes, yes. What does it mean? Okay, the Christian following, right? It, Okay, it's this new movement through Judaism where these guys are calling themselves the way. Well, what is, what way? The way to God, right? It's the way to Christ. Um, it actually comes um, from the book of Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 3. Um, this is where the term the way comes from. It's derived from this passage and other passages in Isaiah, which speak of the way on which the Lord would travel when he came to restore Israel. It's used in Acts as a designation for the believers in Jesus and their teaching that God was restoring Israel through Jesus, the crucified and risen Messiah, an exalted Lord and Savior, and that the community of followers of Jesus is the renewed people of God, this community that was both Jew and Gentile, which really would cook some noodles back in that day. Um, okay, and then finally, we see this way was causing trouble for Demetrius, the silversmith, who made idols of who? Artemis, right? He made idols of Artemis. Um, he was fearful of this teaching of this Paul and, and the way um, that they were um, telling people incorrectly that Demetrius was making idols um, that should be 
um, that shouldn't be worshipped because they're just idols made by human hands. Um, and this would end up taking away from their business. Okay, so he whipped up the other silversmiths into a riot at Ephesus and drug Christians into an assembly to try them for what they had done. And as we saw in the last chapter, it didn't stick. They couldn't end up trying these guys, and a city clerk uh, was able to kind of diffuse the situation. Now, what I think is really interesting, and maybe some of you who have done some street preaching or have uh, maybe uh, done evangelism in an, in an area where there are a lot of people, um, they kept chanting at the, the Christians, and there was even a time where somebody was trying to make a speech to try to defend them, and they kept chanting about Artemis, right? They just kept yelling over them. And so when you're being yelled over or people aren't listening to you, uh, don't feel ashamed or don't feel by yourself. This was something that was practiced all throughout ancient history. They would just scream louder and louder and louder. Uh, I've been in those situations before. It can be frustrating. Uh, We were trying to say something and they just scream at you and you just sit there and honestly, friends, you just take it. You just sit there with a smile on your face. You pray for that person and, and you wait until either their voice is gone or they need to breathe and then you try to explain out of a love Um, and humble spirit who this Jesus Christ is. Okay, there's much more here, uh, but that is our flyover of Acts chapter 19. I hope this was interesting to you. I hope you see how God's word is always awesome. There's just so much good stuff in here, friends, uh, that we should just delight in as we study God's word. So let me pray for us, and you can be dismissed. God, we thank you for recording your works in the Bible. Father, as we read your word, we can be encouraged, we can be rebuked, we can be built up, and we can long for your return. Lord, we long for your return this day. Come, Lord Jesus, come. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.